Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview, How Is This Legal? with attorney Jim Coogan is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. It's Thursday, April 23rd, 2020, but it's a bonus, so Lord knows when you're listening to it. And uh, Jim Coogan, as Dennis said, is my guest. How is this legal? Jim, are you safe and sound, first of all? Uh, I am. Thank you for asking. Uh, I've been listening to your show, so I'm, I'm, I've gathered that you and Dennis are safe and sound as well. <laughs> yes, we are safe and sound. And uh, as you know from listening, we're in my attic overlooking the alley and the brown line. So a word of warning. I know you don't need it, but I'm going to give it anyway. Every now and then the train will roar by. Uh, but just proceed because everybody is making do in these difficult times. Uh as I always do with Jim Coogan, we discuss how uh, is this legal? Jim Coogan, ace attorney for Dwyer and Coogan. And uh, we take a look at some of the legal issues of the day. And I always ask him, how is this legal? And uh, I make Jim do homework. And so he's prepared for the four, basically four topics. I'll uh, sort of announce them at the start. Uh, is Trump above the law? Supreme Court will be deciding that one really soon. Is uh, William Barr insane? Uh, well, that's not really the, the topic uh, that we discussed, but uh, it's sort of on my mind these days as I watch Attorney General Barr uh, sort of declare war on governors who are trying to look out for the best interests of their uh, citizens. Operation Gridlock, is there a liberty at stake that uh, the, the protesters have a right uh, to congregate even if they are in threatening each other's existence and what is brett kavanaugh up to we'll talk about all those things but jim let's start with the first one first uh uh is trump above the law the supreme court is going to have to have a uh, make a, a decision on the issue of trump and his taxes we've talked about this in the past give folks an update on this well uh i'm not surprised this is first on the list because it touches on a, a ben Jarofsky favorite because this the present circumstances in which Mr. Trump finds himself and the question of where and how the legal system can impose itself upon him go back to Watergate in part, uh, as, as you very well know, and listeners probably know, uh, or at least the ones who, who know a bit about that part of our nation's history, uh, the, the question that comes up, and this is actually your most classic constitutional law question that anyone could be discussing. So if you're interested in the law, this is about as fundamental as it gets. Where is the interplay between the different branches of the government? 
So for presidents, with all the powers that they have, we as a nation since the very beginning have struggled with the question of how do they fit together? How do, what's, what's the role of the court? It's defined in, as the third branch of our government, president, Congress, and, and the courts. And uh, the question then becomes, well, what about when either the courts or Congress are interested in investigating the president? What can they do? What do they have the power to do? And what happens if the president isn't interested in cooperating? Which is where we find ourselves today. So, um, you know, in this situation, as uh, Ben Jarowski listeners would be very well aware, Mr. Trump has found himself on the other end of uh, subpoenas in a variety of cases, and his banks have found themselves on, on the receiving end of subpoenas. So we are finally, that is all finally coming to a head this spring. Uh, one of the new developments in our COVID-19 world is that the United States Supreme Court has determined that they officially will have their first virtual uh, oral arguments in the history of the court, which is obviously a, a fairly interesting development just from a historical perspective. But like everyone else, they've got to adapt these days. So here we are. And uh, what that means is it, the time has come that they will have oral arguments. And just to give everybody a, a quick reminder, when a case has gotten to the point where it's at the Supreme Court level, lots and lots of words have been written, hundreds and hundreds of pages of briefs at the trial court level and appellate court level before it even gets there. And sometimes they jump straight to the Supreme Court, but that's rare. But either way, the point is, all of the work has basically been done by the lawyers at this point. And oral arguments are kind of like a capstone in the process. But it means we're almost done. So once they finally schedule oral arguments every spring, the expectation and the anticipation is that June is when the United States Supreme Court starts to issue their decisions for each term. I mean, that might be a little delayed this year because of the circumstances. <clears throat> but um, right now, we're at the point where Trump finally will have some of these cases actually, this, potentially, <laughs> we'll get to that in a second, decided by the Supreme Court as to whether his tax records, his bank records? Does he have to turn things over to Congress in one case? Does the state of, of uh, New York have the right to get bank records um, and charity records and his personal financial records in other cases? Yeah. Now, this may be a question uh, more appropriate for when I have, let's say, Monroe Anderson on the show, who loves to speculate on the misdeeds of Donald Trump. But uh, the issue of the... Uh, the tax documents. Donald Trump has refused to turn over to publicize his tax documents like every other president has. So we know how much they make and how much they pay in taxes and how much they give in charity and so forth. And how conflicted they are. Yes. That's a very good point. How conflicted they are. Uh, the conflicts of interest that uh, exist in their life. Uh, so Donald Trump uh, has said that uh, he's offered a most preposterous statement in the world to defend not turning over his taxes, that he can't turn them over because he's being audited, which no matter how many times he says it, everybody, you know, every expert says that's not true. You can still turn them over. It, but he just keeps insisting it anyway. Uh, so what, Jim, do you think he is concealing when he holds on to his taxes? Well, the only thing I would take issue with there, Ben, is that as you all know, Donald John Trump is, if he is anything, he is a devout rule follower. So, 
I don't, I don't know about this business of him uh, coming up with a pretext for <laughs> the reasons why he don't yeah. share his uh, tax return. But in all se- in seriousness, um, I, I think actually I think the answer to that it doesn't require that much speculation because what, no matter how much obfuscation, nonsense, and, and BS that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth and his Twitter thumbs, he is a very transparent person. If something is good for him, he's going to tell you. So if it's bad for him, he's not going to tell you. Or, you know, he'll, he'll hide it. He'll distract from it. He'll, he'll blow up something over there so you, you, your attention is shifted. Um, so I think at, at a minimum, it is very safe to say that whatever it is, is bad. Um, and, and I don't think that's really speculation. I, I, Monroe, I'm sure, would say it's not, even, it's not speculation because he's got very strong opinions about Mr. Trump. But uh, even Trump, let's call them not supporters, not the devout followers, but even people who are on his team know that none of that is true. They would admit it in a moment of candor, in one of those uh, truth serum moments that you describe when you're, you're talking about getting uh, somebody off the record and away from uh, a recording device. Whether they they really know the truth about it, Donald Trump or whoever their their, their hero is, um, the reality is he would have shown whatever it is mm-hmm. if it was something that would have helped his position or proved just how wealthy he is, yeah. for example. So uh, I think that if I'm, if I'm speculating at all, I guess I could go a little further out under that branch and just say I I believe just based on everything else I've ever read about the guy that it his his financial records, the ones that are something that he submits to the IRS, not, you know, puffed up financials that he submits to make himself look good, would show, number one, that he isn't as wealthy as, as he claims he is. Number two, that he owes a lot more money than he admits that he does. And the third thing it would probably show is the ways in which he is conflicted and raise all sorts of questions about the sources of the money that he does have. Cause he clearly has cash flow. It's not that he has no business interest whatsoever, but uh, we, we heard the American people heard testimony from Michael Cohen when he described very clearly what he believed that he, what, not just believed, but saw the documentation of back when he was involved in Trump properties that on one side of the, the equation, uh, Trump would inflate the value of his properties for the purposes that served him. And then whenever it was what he was paying taxes or something like that, um, property taxes, he would find ways to diminish that value. And if it turned out that there was, they were trying to value it for a loan, on the other hand, talking to banks, all of a sudden it would be, well, this, this thing's going to have an enormous yeah. cash flow. So you can definitely give us $100 million. Uh, but if they were getting insurance for it, uh, you know, they, they, they'd get the most insurance they could, but on the other hand, want to reduce their premiums. I mean, it was, it's all games yeah. and, and different businesses engage in things like that. But I think it's safe to assume with a man like him that he would do it to an extreme degree and probably create legal liability for him, which is the other reason to hide it. Yeah. Uh, although the people in charge of monitoring it already know about it, which is uh, interesting that they haven't prosecuted him already. Uh, presuming the IRS knows what he's up to. Uh, all right, now the setup is that uh, New York is seeking these documents. Prosecutors in New York are seeking his uh, 
tax records, uh, and the the bank that they're seeking them from has agreed that they'll turn them over, uh, and Trump is resisting. The articles that we both have read, uh, past conversations we've had on this, Jim, there's no precedent to defend Donald Trump. And yet, this is what I was getting at with my opening question, it seems as though the Supreme Court, and this is where the Supreme Court gets very political, uh, is very reluctant to force Donald Trump to turn over his tax documents uh, in an election year. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is the present constitution of the Supreme Court, uh, the, the makeup, is you have four fairly uh, reliable, open-minded, and some would say liberal justices. Uh, the other five members consist of a holdover from the George H.W. Bush administration, Clarence Thomas, who was a hard, hardcore conservative of that fits with the way hard, hardcore conservative legal minds are in 2020. And he's been that way for 30 years. So he was ahead of the time in a way, I guess. Um, and then you've got two George Bush appointees, Samuel Alito and John Roberts. And since Donald Trump took office, he's had the, some might say stolen privilege in one instance to appoint one of the justices and in, in the first appointee was Neil Gorsuch, but then the other seat that came open by uh, Justice Kennedy voluntarily retiring uh, is to appoint Brett Kavanaugh. So he's got two of his own appointees there, which, you know, the que- for questions like this, would they recuse themselves is anybody's guess, but I, I, I would, if I were saying, what does Jim Coogan think? I, I would guarantee that they wouldn't do that. Um, and and so now the only reason why you wouldn't have that block of five justices just come out and say, nope, don't trust the law. Uh, he's a Republican, and we're also going to put a qualification into this decision that says it does not apply to future Democratic presidents. Um, the only reason why that wouldn't happen in the present tense and hasn't happened yet, in my estimation, is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, still has a desire to maintain the legitimacy of the court in the public eye. And now there are, there are, there are court watchers that would say that is hanging on by a thread or has already, has already stepped anyway. But it's still something that is obviously very important to him. He's an institutionalist. He's the center most of the conservative justices, if, if that's really a thing. Um, he definitely has gone out of his way to make sure that some decisions were, were uh, made, like the, the Obamacare decision, in such a way as to preserve a law and not appear too political, but then, of course, has gone on the majority of like the, the Shelby County decision that ripped apart the Voting Rights Act and didn't have any compunction about it in that case. So, But, but I think he, as the, the glue that holds this court together at this stage, would and being the chief justice would be the one who's thinking this would completely tarnish the Supreme Court's image and their capacity to be seen as impartial. If you had a five to four decision that said Donald Trump does not have to comply with the law, which, which by the way, civil and criminal investigations have previously been that this would require the destruction of precedent, very important precedent in the Watergate case, case where 
Richard Nixon refused to turn over recordings that he'd made, but the Supreme Court said, nine to nothing, by the way, yeah. you must do this. You are subject to investigation. Do not follow the law. And Bill Clinton didn't want to sit for a civil deposition or participate in discovery in a civil case brought by Paula Jones for sexual harassment in the 1990s. And again, unanimous decision said, you're, you may be the president, but you're still a litigant. And, you know, most, and then one way to read that is how could a Supreme Court say that a civil case where you really just have one party at interest is important enough to take the president's time and he has to be subject to discovery, but a criminal case where who knows how many other people might be implicated and how much criminal activity had gone on isn't important enough to, to impinge upon the president's quote unquote busy schedule. Yeah. So the, the, my guess is listening to you uh, is that John Roberts is going to try to figure out some way to punt. And the, the, the legal equivalent of punting, in other words, uh, get him out of an awkward moment so that the decision will be rendered after the pressure is off. Uh, so in other words, let's say after November's election, Donald Trump is, I personally think Donald Trump will be defeated. Uh, that's a whole other issue, Jim. I'd be happy to talk to you about any time. But I personally think that Donald Trump will be defeated in November uh, unless he does some massive voter suppression, which would be abetted, by the way, by Supreme Court rulings from Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Uh, but in if he doesn't get away with the massive voter suppression, I think he'll be defeated, at which point it might be more convenient for the Supreme Court to force him to release his taxes. But I don't think that John Roberts uh, has got the, uh, what, the independence to make be the decisive vote to force Donald Trump on the eve of election to turn over his taxes. What do you think? <laughs> well, that is even much, much more than a million-dollar question. Uh, and if he did decide to do that, it would be a substantial development in the history. Like that would rank up there very high with some of the most notable moments of jurisprudence from the Supreme Court in the whole country's history. I feel like it's extraordinarily unlikely because there is there's always a way for the Supreme Court to get out of making a decision. I mean, people don't really think about it this way, but judges of Supreme Courts don't really have deadlines. In theory, they do. I mean, they certainly don't want to do misjustice or miscarry justice by just not doing their job, leaving a, you know, a criminal defendant in jail who should be exonerated because of because of bad evidence, or leaving civil litigants to just wander for years and years and years. But they can kick it. They can just straight up kick a case to it to the next calendar. They can just make it carry over if they choose. Nobody can stop them from doing that. There's no power that you can invoke to say that this is immediate. You can file some kind of cert and say that this must be decided now, but they are under no obligation to care or even to listen. So there's that aspect of it. There's also the aspect that they could they could find ways to remand any and all of the claims against the president on technicality. You know, go back and reissue these subpoenas because of whatever, yeah. whatever technicality they might find. So do I think he will do it? I, I really just think, even though I think it'd be fascinating for that information to finally be in front of the American people and, and possibly put an end once and for all 
to even the pretense of Donald Trump being a serious person and a businessman and all the things that he has gotten into this position claiming that he is. Because I, I really feel like there's just virtually zero chance that one whatever documents come out that they will be good for him. Maybe some of it might be, but there's no way that this doesn't destroy his image whenever it happens. Mm -hmm. So you're asking what a, one of a very proper gentleman, an institutionalist, and at the end of the day, he wouldn't, he, he can't pretend, he'll say it's not true, but definitely a Republican judge. Would he pull the pin on something that would basically be a grenade to Donald Trump's political character and his chances of being reelected? I just can't see it happen. Gotcha. Not now, not, not in an election year. And, and like you said, the reality is, even if, I mean, now you have a totally different question if he does get reelected. Because you can't just string this along for four more years, no matter what, no matter what their power is in terms of not being held to a calendar. That, that would be preposterous. And then there's another way to look at it that it wouldn't matter because he can't seek reelection again afterwards based on the uh, Constitution's limit on the number of times you could run for president. So maybe it doesn't matter either way. And they would, the, the deaths would definitely have cleared and all pressure is off once he's a private citizen again. So that would be the easiest way to do what I think legally absolutely is the right thing. There's no, there's no exclusion for these things that applies to regular people. And there's no exclusion to, to have to comply with these sort of rules for presidents. His lawyers have just made it up whole clock. It would be not just overruling prior precedent, but creating a whole new exemption for a president that, to me, seems completely antithetical to the nation or to the notion of this constitution, how it was written in the first place. We wanted to have limited power for a very powerful executive. He had to be subject to the law. So for them to write that would just be so, no matter how partisan they might be, would be so gross and just kind of just, just, uh, they're electing their own obligation to uphold the constitution and what any honest person would say it stands for. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings me to the last question I was going to ask you, but I'm going to move that up because it's a perfect time to ask it. What is uh, Brett Kavanaugh up to with some of his uh, recent writings? And it seems as though he's preparing to issue a ruling uh, that would break all precedents. And it may be a ruling in this case. So let's talk about this. What is Brett Kavanaugh up to? So Brett Kavanaugh, and now that's a great observation and a, and a very good question to ask here. Um, and I'll add one piece of history before I jump into the answer. And that is Brett Kavanaugh is one of those guys who believes very strongly in the unitary power of the president. And he's written things as an appellate judge that lean towards the president basically being all powerful, not subject to scrutiny. Like, Congressional scrutiny should be as limited as possible. Um, I imagine he would very wholeheartedly sign on to a decision that would um, overturn the, the, the Nixon decision. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, you raised the question of what he's up to. There was a, a very, um, I guess, good but uncontroversial case that, became, that came before the Supreme Court recently. For whatever a variety of, I think, racist historical reasons, the state of Louisiana and the state of Oregon were the last two states in the union, which, by the way, has 50 states. I don't know if you don't be misled by some of the president's tweets. It's only 50. <laughs> um, yeah. 50 states in the union, two of them still 
contained the residual racist um, rule that for criminal trials, you did not need a unanimous verdict by the jury to convict someone. The reason why I mentioned the racist uh, underpinnings of this mm-hmm. is that's the historical reason why they were even in place. I mean, I, reading some of the background of this was fascinating. After Reconstruction, in this is, I'm sorry, in Louisiana, they, they actually called the Constitutional Convention, and the, the words that were recorded were specifically that they wanted to, uh, once they realized that pursuant to the 14th Amendment, that uh, black Americans, black Louisianans would be on juries, and, you know, white power class in, in Louisiana wanted to be able to continue to pin crimes on black people and get convictions and not have, uh, you know, a fair trial for black defendants, they actually said the words out loud that that was the reason why they were amending the Constitution to allow, um, I think it was nine person out of 12 convictions, and later on it was changed to twelve to 10 out of 12 some years later. But he explicitly cited the, the need to keep the power of the white race over, over black Americans, which is, uh, that was only 1898. Not really that long ago in a lot of ways. Um, so Oregon also had this, this uh, rule, although I think they, they had basically taken it out of practice. So the question was, somebody who had been convicted by a non-unanimous jury, and now actually Louisiana had since changed the law. So this didn't apply hardly to anyone. But this guy because of the change in the rule only applies to 2018, I think, was still sitting in prison. And so he appealed that and said, this is wrong. They've changed the law. I shouldn't still be here. It was wrong to have done this in the first place. Fortunately for him, um, the Supreme Court in this decision, they overturned a precedent from the 1960s, I believe, or 70s, the Apodaca case, where they, that was, talk about a, a, a sidestepping their moral duty, that United States Supreme Court, four of the judges wanted to make the to do away with non-unanimous jury verdicts in criminal cases completely. The other four only wanted to do it at the federal level. Uh, so that was the compromise that they came up with. Or I think they only wanted to do it where it applied uh, to the states and they or to all. The other one wanted to keep it the federal. So the thing was, Justice Powell was the the uniting vote. They were able to come up with a compromise that. At that time, they wouldn't force states to change their rules, but all federal uh, verdicts, even in Louisiana, would have to be uh, a unanimous verdict in order to convict a person of a crime. Mm-hmm. So Louisiana was still sitting out there, and this guy was in jail, and so that was what he was saying, and, and they, they did overrule Apodaca. But in the decision, one of the concurrences, and just to remind everybody, when, when appellate courts do these decisions, especially when there's a nine-person Supreme Court, you can have seven of them all agree with something, and the other two basically agree with it, but they still want to make some other point. So the decision might really be nine to nothing, but two judges just wanted to point out some kind of exception or some rule or talk about public policy in some way. They call that a concurrence. So he still is agreeing with overturning this principle because it's it has no no moral basis in the law, right? You shouldn't you shouldn't allow people to be convicted if not all 12 of them believe that there was no reasonable doubt about whether they convicted, committed the crime. But Kavanaugh's concurrence was long. It's like an 18-page uh, review of overturning precedent just as a general principle, talking about how what kind of principles has the court used in the past. He sort of came to the conclusion that there wasn't really a strict 
set of guidelines, but that they had some general guidelines, um, whether the decision seemed to be egregiously wrong, like a really, really bad decision, how much reliance there has been by states on a particular decision, like how much uh, precedent it, it is actually set, and whether there was some really significant, these are the kind of the three general principles, whether there was some really significant piece of jurisprudence that was screwed up in the prior decision. Um, but basically kind of going through this whole thing, saying that, reminding all the, the judges, because this is, lawyers also notice how in these concurrences, judges are sort of talking to the other judges on the record to sort of say, hey, the majority wrote something really dumb here. We're, 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 uh, we're dissenting from it and explaining why. Well, he wanted to remind all other eight judges that as Supreme Court judges, they've all overturned precedent before like nudge nudge wink wink hey you guys have done it too don't don't forget sometime in the future when in other words he's trying to diminish the power of stare decisis that's the latin legal phrase for something that's already been done and stare decisis it's it's if you think about it it has a lot of social value because once we as a society get used to the law being a certain way we adapt in all kinds of ways to that being just the way it is, sort of like, you know, COVID-19 restrictions, as weird as it is that I can't shake anybody's hand and, uh, you know, I go to the grocery store and, and I'm spraying down all my groceries when I come back, but I'm still kind of, I'm already sort of used to it in a way, mm-hmm. you know, stare decisis is reflecting in the fact that social institutions might spend 50 years building themselves around a certain legal principle and just ripping it out from under them is costly and disruptive and, and maybe wrong on some level. So Kavanaugh, what is he up to? He seems to be laying the groundwork for some kind of upheaval. Whether he'll actually accomplish it or not is, is certainly subject to a lot of other circumstances, but he's taking the time and making a huge effort to remind all the judges that it's something that they can do. Well, well, my guess uh, is it'll probably be the tax case uh, that the upheaval will occur in. And that leads me to something that you just mentioned. I hadn't thought about this. The argument for recusing himself. I hadn't thought about this. What is the, the precedent on a Supreme Court justice making a decision that uh, deals with a criminal matter regarding the president who nominated him to the Supreme Court? There are canons of judicial ethics that legally about whether or not a judge should hear a certain decision. And they call that recusal when the judge says, you know what, I I can't be a fair referee here because one of the parties is my cousin. Or I used to work for the company that's being sued here, so I certainly can't be fair here. Um, The problem with those canons of ethics is they really don't technically apply to the Supreme Court. And before you think, oh, that's not possible, yeah, it is possible. There have been rumblings over the years that they should make that more explicit, that the Supreme Court of the United States should be subject to the same rules as any other judge in the country. But further to the point, there, there have been judges, justices, have, have occasionally recused themselves from things. Kavanaugh actually has. He's recused himself from decisions that he was a part of at the lower court level. Um, and I, I think uh, Justice Kagan has rightfully recused herself from decisions that involve things from when she was part of the Solicitor General's office for the yeah. Obama administration. 
Um, so they do do it, although generally speaking, it has more to do with their personal involvement with a litigant than uh, something that might involve the president. And, and frankly, I actually don't know that there's a precedent of a Supreme Court justice sitting out a decision that involved the president who appointed them just because the president was the litigant in the case. I mean, on one hand, that doesn't happen very often. And on the other hand, most of the lawsuits that involve the, the executive branch aren't really the president being sued. It's usually the EPA or some <clears throat> or the DOJ being sued or somebody who's being sued as an agency of the of the president's branch of the uh, federal government. So those are they're pretty rare where Donald J. Trump or Barack Hussein Obama is being sued individually and not in their executive capacity. So I don't, I don't actually think there is precedent. And maybe the most important point is nobody could enforce that. Nobody could force Brett Kavanaugh to sit that decision out. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any way in the world he's going to sit it out. Uh, you, when you mentioned it, uh, I thought, Oh, that's the first time I'd ever even heard of that. Uh, and I mean, our argument can be made that he, he in particular is far too, uh, has too much a bias in this matter. I, I've said that from the get go, from when the second round, we discussed this, uh, there, he went through two rounds of hearings in front of the Senate. And the second round, when uh, he was forced to deal with the accusations of uh, sexual harassment from um, Christina Ford, uh, he he if you remember he came out hard on the senate democrats and he articulated the the side of kavanaugh that had been a republican operative back in the 90s uh working for ken Starr against bill clinton so to me you know i just felt he already had showed that he was could not fairly administer justice in any matters dealing any political matters I that well, was I don't clear. want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, Ben, but don't forget when when Justice Anthony Kennedy re- retired, yes, his son, Kennedy's son, yeah. works for Deutsche Bank and was actually involved in some of the the loan decisions to Donald Trump as a businessman. I mean, so <laughs> you know, would would Trump have have like voluntarily let someone go when? that fix was basically in and not made sure to appoint somebody who knew better. Uh, you know, he doesn't seem like the type who would just find, I just want to find the most impartial judge that yeah. I possibly can. I just don't see that. No, I, I, uh, it's, sometimes conspiracies are true. Uh, so we'll be watching Kavanaugh, but, uh, essentially I think they're going to get, let Trump get away with this. Uh, to conceal his uh, taxes until after and this matter won't be resolved. Let's put it this way. If he's forced to uh, reveal his taxes, it won't be until after uh, the November election. That much is obvious. All right, let's move on to somebody else who's usually up to no good, uh, and that would be our attorney general, uh, a particular interest of yours. I wouldn't call it an obsession, Jim, uh, but I would say it's an interest. Uh, William Barr, man, he's out of nowhere, or at least was out of nowhere as far as I was concerned. I, the, the article uh, appeared that he was going to be uh, vigilant uh, in overseeing uh, the governors of the the country to make sure they weren't overstepping their bounds in regards to citizens' right to go to church. And this caught me off guard. I, I never thought of the attorney general as a person who would monitor such a thing, monitor such a thing. And I also never thought that it was a violation of one's liberty 
to say that you couldn't go to church uh, in the middle of a pandemic if there was a larger and greater health uh, matter at risk. So what's your take on all this? Yeah, but doesn't it make you feel better to know that Bill Barr is looking over your governor <laughs> and everybody else's governor's shoulder to make sure that they're not unfairly messing with your freedom of assembly, Ben? Doesn't, I, that, yeah. doesn't that give you uh, great reassurance? It gives me great. But, you know, it's funny. I'm a huge Bulls fan. Why didn't he go to court to fight for my right to watch Bulls games, okay, you know? Uh, well, that's because that's because missing the rest of this season was an act of mercy. But, okay. um, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I I know that you go off on a lot of tangents in your regular show, and I don't mean to do it here, but I do have to say I I also watched the first two episodes of, and I know this this is a bonus episode, so we could talk, talk about sports for five minutes. Yes, right? yeah, Dennis um, will let us. Yeah, I did watch the first two episodes of the last dance, and one thing I want to say about it is it felt like a cosmic gift that this thing just sort of landed in the middle of a sports wilderness where there's just nothing happening. And it just so happens to be one of the most, like one of my happiest memories of my life was being, was living as a, a, a kid and then a teenager through the 1990s watching those bulls. I mean, it's like, it was like the most perfectly heartwarming thing to happen. Like at exactly the moment that, that at least personally I needed. So uh, I, I felt a lot of joy the last couple of nights watching those things. So I just, I needed to say that. And I also wanted to say, I thought it was funny since you're a, a political writer and you've been doing it for 40 years that when you did the, the coffee gag the other day and asked Dennis to go take a look at, take a look <laughs> at the coffee. Yeah. But when he, but, but the part that I thought was funniest was when he came back and you were, you were jokingly trying to cover yeah. and like you'd been talking politics the whole time. Yeah. But the best you could come up with was something about the currency rates in the European <laughs> Union or something. Like, you're a political guy. You couldn't have said something about Lightfoot or, or even made it sound more plausible. I, I yeah, thought, that bit needs a little work. We're working <laughs> on it. Why? I don't know what motivated me to start talking about foreign currencies. I don't know. Right. Uh, but Because <laughs> if anything, Dennis would have known. That's not something you would have normally talked about. That would be a dead giveaway. <laughs> uh, no, I wanted him to be impressed. My God, he's really d- been doing his homework and he's about foreign currency. I, Jim, for the life of me, I don't know why that popped into my mind. I was riffing uh, like crazy at that moment, and I just foreign currencies, yes, international monetary policy uh, affecting the Deutsche Mark. Uh, and then he told me to go look at the coffee. <laughs> hey, that coffee down there. Go look at it, huh? I, all right, I'm going to resist the temptation to take the deep dive uh, into uh, <laughs> the Bulls' uh, last dance, which I'm utterly obsessed with. Because, uh, yeah, uh, Jim, that uh, no, I, 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 I watch. Forward to hearing the shows where you will. It's yeah, we will. We will. I had Kevin Blackstone. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, I don't know where we were when we went on that tangent. Where were we? Uh, Bill Barr. Well, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, we were so the the it's well. Here's what I'll say: I have a lot of suspicion about a lot of the things that our attorney general has been up to since he took that position. Yeah, um, he definitely torpedoed the Mueller investigation report. Um, he, he has not been straightforward about about things that he's been up to, or uh, frankly, I think there was some. At best, you could call it caginess, but possibly dishonesty in his testimony before Congress on a couple of occasions. This particular case, the only the, the thing I'll have to admit is he's not wrong 
about the decision that Greenville, Mississippi made. So the case you're referring to, like the, the thing that the touchstone for him mentioning that he's going to protect religious liberty everywhere, which is absolutely one of his obsessions. The touchstone was a situation in Mississippi where the church had indicated to their parishioners that they could come in and do a drive-in mm. to church, park in the parking lot, not have their cars immediately next to each other, and that they broadcast the services on a short band or a, a short distance uh, bandwidth radio station, something that you could only hear within a block or two in the church. So you really had to be there. So it was like a communal experience. Mm. So it, it's not correct for um, the, there to be any kind of restriction on, you could look at it one of two ways, either the, the, the free practice of religion under the First Amendment or the freedom to assemble under the First Amendment because they are First Amendment rights. If you're going to do it, you will be subject to strict scrutiny if you get sued by somebody like the church or a parishioner who says that you, the local government, was, was stepping on the Constitution. Strict scrutiny means that when the United States Supreme Court took that case up, or, or obviously it, it, this is the same rules apply at the local level, the, the district court judge would be deciding whether or not uh, they did this right. They do the analysis by trying to figure out whether Number one, it has to be some compelling interest that generated the rule, which you would certainly find that here. Okay, you know, it's a situation where any kind of social contact risks the spread of COVID-19. It's a highly transmissible disease, and having restrictions on social interaction, including not going to church, absolutely is a compelling interest for the state to make a rule about that, or the city using their police powers. However, in addition to having a compelling interest, the government actor, whoever it is that's taking this action, restricting your, your rights, even if it's to make you, you know, forcing you not to go to the United Center, um, also has to show that they did it in the most narrowly tailored way. So I actually have to, <laughs> this is weird, I have to say that Barr is correct, that it's not okay for Greenville to allow, like, you know, movies, movie theaters, I think, were allowed to be open at the same time that they were explicitly handing out tickets to these people for going to church. Mm-hmm. Now, in Illinois, you can't do either. You can't go to the movies, you can't go to the United Center, and you can't go to church. So if he came down and said somehow that, you know, I'm the attorney general and I think J.B. Pritzker is wrong, everything should be closed except for churches, he'd have no business doing that. There wouldn't be any constitutional support for it, and, you know, it would just be lunacy. But in this situation, he's doing two things. On one hand, he's correct about the law there, but obviously it's just more signaling to all of the Trump people and the evangelical wing of the Trump uh, cult, whatever they want to call themselves, that he's still on their side and he's fighting for those religious liberties, even when, you know, this would be, this is a slam dunk case anyway, yeah. for the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah. They didn't have to file a statement of interest. He didn't have to go on Hugh Hewitt's show to talk about it. And he didn't have to file a big uh, press release saying how important this is and and uh, wagging his finger at governors not to do this kind of thing. But he did because he's Bill Barr. No, Bill Barr, uh, and this is one thing that's emerged from our conversations, uh, really sharp in my mind. He's a soldier. He's a soldier for Donald Trump. And uh, he's not... And for God. Well, yeah, and part of, part of his worth, his value to Donald Trump, who is basically a secularist, Donald Trump doesn't go to church. 
Donald Trump has never shown that he's had any interest whatsoever in organized religion. He knows less about the Bible than I do. And so, and yet he's the fan favorite among evangelicals, uh, Jim. And I think that uh, Barr serves a purpose for him. Uh, he's he's showing that he's not only a soldier for Donald Trump to defend him uh, from the Mueller investigation, or I'm sure he'll, he'll he'll probably weigh in sooner or later if he hasn't already on the attack situation. Uh, but he's also going to let evangelicals know that as Donald Trump's uh, chief appointee on criminal matters uh, and uh, justice, he will be on their side and he will use the Justice Department uh, to defend them or uphold uh, their sense of being picked on. And that's how, that's the message he's going to beam out. So he serves... Donald Trump on two fronts. You know what I'm saying? He, ter- yeah. he serves them uh, in the secular battle against the Mullers of the world and in the religious battle against the secularists, which Donald Trump is a secularist. You know, he's so it's he's a very useful appointee for Donald Trump, far more useful than Sessions, who he replaced, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, there's no question about that, because this this is just gratuitous as far as the Department of Justice goes, Mm -hmm. but it it serves a very important and specific purpose. Although, I don't know, I've heard heard Trump cite two Corinthians uh, (laughs) before uh, when he's he's, he's, uh, citing to his, looking back at his Bible study days and (laughs) and, uh, handing out moral lessons. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We, we, We have... We've gone over this ground a little bit about the uh, corrupt bargain that obviously was struck between the two men who I'm sure on a personal level, Barr is probably disgusted by uh, or or feels that Donald Trump's soul isn't saved. And also he does terrible things and also doesn't think it's right for him to uh, not embrace religion. But that doesn't matter because this is his entree into interjecting that uh, these moral Christian values into law enforcement at the most powerful position in the country. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And we'll close with this operation gridlock. I've loved talking about this one since it broke, uh, the, the great protest that erupted in Michigan about a week ago where thousands of people got in their cars, drove the Lansing, clogged the streets, uh, to, to demand that the governor of Michigan open up the state, but you know, didn't get out of the cars, Jim, cause just wanted to make sure, uh, <laughs> they want her to open the state, but they're afraid to get out of their cars. Anyway, they're declaring a, a freedom, a liberty, uh, to be able to uh, go back to work, even if it endangers them. Uh, is there anything legal about what they're declaring? Is there any uh, precedent on this matter? Well, which people do you give more credit to? The ones who are so strident in their dismissal of the existence of, I guess, the whole virus that they, that they're outside coughing on each other or the ones who are smart enough to realize, <laughs> you know, I want to make a lot of noise about this, but I'm definitely not going to get myself sick. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess you got to give in, in a sense more credit to the people who are just exposing themselves to the virus. They're going, they're taking one for the team. I sub, I suppose. More uh, authentic, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, number one, first and foremost, and by the way, good, good Lord, when you think about the, you've been critical 
of mixed signals, which, you know, I guess when it comes to government officials is like fish in a barrel. But at a time like this where it's a crisis, you definitely want to have consistency and, uh, and mixed signals are not good. But talk about mixed signals where on one hand, the CDC is issuing these guidelines and then Trump's texting or tweeting out to liberate Minnesota. But then later on criticizes Brian Kemp yeah. for uh, opening up, I guess, tomorrow, right? Yeah. Unless they change their mind on that. Tomorrow's the 24th. They're supposed to uh, the first substantially phase. Yeah. loosen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. It, we, we, yeah, the first the first phase of a, of a phased-in opening <laughs> yeah. where they haven't met the guidelines to start with the first phase. Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah. So, you know, states have broad police powers in, in enforcing uh, where people are and confining them to places if need be broad police powers. I mean, let's go back to real quick constitutional law. The states are sovereign states. They, they exist, the, the, at least 13 of them existed as colonies before there was a constitution. So we built the federal government or the federalist system to reflect the fact that states had a tremendous amount of power, and that includes police powers. And police powers aren't just your local police department. It's public health and enforcement of where people can go. And um, in general, even though the Constitution guarantees your right to free assembly, and there's also a constitutional law allowing you free passage from state to state within the, the 50 states, um, that does not mean that, that those things can't be restricted when there's a good justification for it. So similar to what we were talking about earlier, when you have very extreme exigent circumstances, you can do things that normally would be subject to strict scrutiny, and they might pass. So, you know, Governor Pritzker's got the Emergency Powers Act, or, or I think that's what it's called here in Illinois, that further defines what he can do. Same, there's something analogous up in Michigan that Governor Whitmer's using, and uh, in every state where they've been smart enough to pass these these executive orders. And executive orders, by the way, not legislation, because they're not going to force a bunch of legislators to sit around and break social distancing and all get each other sick, because that would also be a very foolish and unwise thing to do. Um, you know, I, I think this is a situation that it doesn't really take a lot of legal scholar uh, to understand that it's absolutely the right thing to do. I, I think in Michigan, the problem that they ran into was uh, the, the order that Whitmer wrote had some things in there that opened her up to easy pot shots, by you know, cheap shots about, well, what then was what it make if I went on my boat? You know, yeah. I'm not going to go interact with anyone else. So that that gives you know that's cheap fodder for the Fox and Friends crowd to to be in the peanut gallery and make fun of her for for going overboard. And she's one of those you know typical libs that wants to overregulate everything. Um, but you know these these protests uh, and that's the, I, I was going to check in with you because I think Monday was the day that there were actually some folks down in Springfield. My guess was there was probably about 20 or 30 of them, but they did have it on TV, so they made the news. Uh, and I was hoping that you weren't down there. No. Um, <laughs> since you don't, you don't do your live show on Mondays. So yeah. I, was, I was a little worried. But yeah, I no, don't worry about late. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of insane. You know, you read the background on it, and you, you can, it's not hard. Five minutes of internet research would, would reveal the fact that a lot of the hashtags, a lot of the organizational support behind these organizations comes from big money interests, the same sort of folks that, that funded the AstroTurf protests back in the Tea Party days. Yeah. Um, it's not 
you know, maybe some, there are definitely dupes that fall for it and they're out there and they really believe it. But there's also folks that are encouraging them that are just cynical and have no interest in what's happening. So some of them are just taking the money of the billionaires and, and the folks like the DeVos families behind one of those groups, which is kind of twisted given that she's the secretary of education and it's her family who's yeah. funding one of these things. Um, but then there's the people at the top who, I mean, what's, what's their point? You, you ask the question, what's the end game? And fundamentally, I think it's just a way to, to try to take shots at and diminish the respectability and the apparent seriousness and success of not only Gretchen Whitmer, yeah. but government itself. This is an age, 2020, where we are being reminded up and down the spectrum of the actual good that government can do. The, the point that we are part of a social experiment, that we're part of a, a government experiment that requires everybody to buy in, and that working together, we can do a lot more than if we were just working apart. And so government's looking good in 2020. But that is the antithetical to the message that the billionaire class and, and the Tea Party funders and the Koch brothers, although there's only one left now, yeah. and the whole entire Republican Party has been hook, line, and sinker since 1980. Yeah. Or, you know, before then, but definitely since 1980. So I feel like these are 1,000% the product of a need to make the people who are doing a darn good job working hard. I mean, you know, you guys joke about J.B. Pritzker, but I know you, you're both very, you know, res I know you respect the work that he's doing. I certainly do because he is working his rear end off. I mean, he's out there every day and they're doing things that need to be done. They're trying to find out the most reasonable way to do it. They don't know all the answers and they're honest about that. I mean, this is like exactly what you would expect. And of course there's going to be missteps, but at the same time, he's looking great. Andrew Cuomo is looking great. Gavin Newsom is like, one of my, one of my most hardcore right wing buddies uh, said to me on a, uh, we were talking I don't know, a couple weeks ago and he said, even I admit that, that Gavin Newsom looks good because he's yeah. this friend of mine lives out in Arizona. So he's watching more of that. Um, so I think this is, a, this is just a, a, a time for them to create a spectacle to undermine the legitimacy of all of it because the longer this drags on, not just the COVID-19, but also uh, the, the clear delineation of well, who is competent in government and when can it be done well versus who is going to create more havoc and disaster like Governor Kemp in, in uh, Georgia. If that drags all the way through November, Republicans are going to be routed. Yeah. I mean, uh, unless there's a guy like Mike DeWine, the governor, the Republican governor of Ohio, who can sort of sidestep all that and say, hey, listen, I've been on the right side of all of this. And I'm a serious person. I'm not a hack. I'm not a lunatic. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to support the president, but I'm certainly not going to like injure my own mm -hmm. citizens to do it. Uh, he could survive that. But the rest of them are stuck. Yeah. They're all, you know, like they have Trump around the neck like a boat anchor. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I have to say, I asked a legal question. And essentially, you showed that there was no legal justification for it, and it became a political thing. And I think you're absolutely correct. I think this is um, an ill-advised attempt, because I do not see it being successful, uh, to discredit government at the very time when people are looking to government to uh, get them through, help get through this crisis. And so it's very difficult. I'll tell you what. Uh, Jim, I'm watching even, uh, Donald Trump str struggle with this one. 
And you talk about mixed messages. Every day there's another mixed message from Donald Trump. Usually in the same briefing, there's a mixed message from Donald Trump. But uh, uh, on the one hand, he has to project this, just what you're, what you were talking about, project this notion that he's in charge, he cares about the body politic, he's looking out for the well-being of people. On the other hand, he can't get too far from that base, you know, where the message is that the thing is sort of a hoax to begin with, and the governors are overstepping their bounds. So, uh, yeah, it's a very delicate dance that uh, Donald Trump and his allies are doing, and I can't wait to get rid of all of them from the positions of power they have. All right, Jim. Uh, one, one, one other thing I just want to throw in there, Ben, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. If you think about it, that's the other thing that's terrible about this. They're not protesting. It's not the actual Tea Party back in the day where there's no risk to standing out in public and yelling and acting like a goofball with a tricorn hat on. I mean, <laughs> that was fine. Here, you, at the end of the day, if you want to expose yourself to COVID-19 and you, just, you think it's a, a fraud, so you think it's fine, that's one thing, but you don't do that in a vacuum. Yeah. One more person who spreads it to 20 more people causes more pressure or creates more pressure on the people who are, are, are the greatest heroes in this moment, the doctors, the nurses, the, the hospital staff that are working not, you know, nonstop 24 hours a day to try to save lives. So this kind of a thing where you're flouting these rules and pot, and it's inevitable that somebody got sick who wouldn't have got sick yeah. otherwise is, is, is kind of, just, it's almost evil. Like if you really think about it, that's because you're you're hurting people who have nothing to do with you in that situation. One more nurse will get sick because of that, yeah. probably, and yeah. and maybe somebody never goes home to their kids because of it. That's just that's very twisted. Yeah. Um, so, and, and yeah, it's it, it, it's kind of like it's even more it's even more wrong in this situation. It's not just political games with this kind of thing. And that's why ultimately, uh, and this is where I keep my shred of optimism. I, I just cannot believe that a majority of American voters are going to sanction this madness. That's why I think Donald Trump will lose. I, I believe even with this uh, electoral system that's set up to protect the political interests of the Republican Party, I do not believe that a, a majority of Americans uh, will sanction this because it's so uh, it's so counterintuitive. It's, it's just so flies against all logic. And uh, so anyway, let's uh, end it on that uh, relatively optimistic note. Jim Coogan from Dwyer and Coogan, thanks so much for taking time out. How is this legal? A regular uh, feature on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Take care, Jim. You too, Ben. It's been my virtual pleasure. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's correct. Uh, All right, Jim. Good job. Uh,